I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Suki, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So Whit, in light of recent news, are you a prepper yet? I, <laughs> it's too, it, it, you should ask my wife whether I'm capable of preparing for anything at all. I, I the only, thought the only thing I did during the pandemic to prep for anything was buy a decent webcam. Well, I've been eyeing these, uh, like Costco sells these massive packages of prepper meals. Um, and they have, I mean, they're just, they're massive. And I'm sort of like eyeing them and thinking maybe it's time. What is in them? Is it I steak? Don't, I'm sure it's cardboard. I mean, I'm sure it's just okay. totally foul. Um, but I've been reading the news out of Texas because I have a couple of pals who live there. And during during the recent storm, I was worried about them and couldn't do anything. And so like online anxiety shopping seemed like a solution. Well, we're going to have one of those pals on uh, the show here right next. Um, but first of all, we're going to talk about what the show is. And this is this is my... I mean, look, there's been a lot of reporting on Texas and what happened down there during the freeze and the power outages, and we're going to talk about all of that. But I also kind of want to talk about, I think we want to talk about Texas generally. Like, basically, what the fuck, Texas? What is going on down there? What is going on in your literature? What is going on with your energy? What is going on with your politics? Just what the fuck? So uh, one of us is a family-friendly host and one of us is Whitney. Uh, Just kidding. (laughs) Sort of. Uh, I have to say. Missourians don't like Texans. We just don't. I, I do have a, I have an anti-Texas prejudice. I'm going to admit that. Anyway, later in the show, we'll be talking to Natalia Sylvester about growing up in and writing about Texas. But first, we are joined by returning guest and my pal, all-star Lacey M. Johnson. Lacey is a Houston-based professor and curator and activist and is author of three books, including Trespasses, a memoir, The Other Side, and most recently, The Reckonings which was named a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist in criticism and one of the best books in 2018 by Boston Globe, Electric Literature, Auto Straddle, Book Riot, and Refinery29. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, Paris Review, The Virginia Quarterly Review, Tin House, Guernica, Fourth Genre, Creative Nonfiction, and elsewhere. She teaches creative nonfiction at Rice University and is the founding director of the Houston Flood Museum. Lacey, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. It's really great to talk to you both. It's so great to see you. We're um, so glad to see you and also so glad that you're okay. I know that some of the some of the story of how your family fared in the recent freeze in Texas because you were occasionally texting during that period. Um, but can you walk our listeners through the timeline of your experience and tell us what the situation's like now? Sure. So the timeline was, um, 
you know, in the week leading up to the storm, we, I think people were increasingly aware that it was going to freeze, you know, (laughs) anytime that it's drops below freezing in Houston, it isn't, it is on the news, you know, it's a, it's a big deal just because Houston doesn't really have the infrastructure to deal with freezing temperatures. Um, you know, as, um, as I was saying to you, Sugi, in, um, in our text messages, you know, a lot of the homes in Houston are built on pier and beam. And so the, and the plumbing runs underneath is uninsulated. And if it drops below freezing, your pipes can break. Um, and, um, you know, if there's freezing rain, as they were predicting for this storm or ice, um, you know, we don't have snow plows and salt trucks and all the things that in, you know, growing up in the Midwest in Missouri, um, you know, that, that sort of get you through a storm like that. So there was a lot of messaging in advance of the storm to just pre- be prepared to hunker down as we do when there's a storm coming, a hurricane or something else like that. Um, so we, you know, purchased a lot of food and we're prepared to stay in our house for you know, five days, six days and not leave while the while the roads were, um, you know, impassable. We went to bed Sunday night expecting the storm to arrive. Monday morning we woke up, there was snow on snow on the ground. You know, my kids were super excited because they have seen snow maybe a handful of times in their life um, and, you know, put on winter coats and went outside and scraped together some gloves and made these tiny little snow, snow people, um, which was charming and great. Um, but there was no power, like we didn't have any power. And um, because there was no power, we also didn't really have any cell reception. Um, and didn't really have any way to get information about what was going on. Our house got down to about 35 degrees inside the house overnight. That was the night that our pipes froze the first time. Um, We got a little bit of power on Tuesday for about 10 hours, and then um, we were without power for another 36 hours after that. 35 degrees in the house is not good. (laughs) No, it's not. What were you doing? When I was a kid, I remember we used to, we would light candles and, you know, do that sort of thing. Was that what it was like? Yeah. I mean, we have a gas powered fireplace. We had that on. Um, we were cooking our food with a camp, like a propane camping stove in the garage. Um, we had these little power banks to keep our cell phones charged and, and things like that. And, um, we're making frequent trips to sit in the car to get warm, you know, to turn the car on and get warm and try to listen to the radio and learn what was going on. Um, but yeah, then the second time we were without power 36 hours and um, all the food spoiled in the fridge. Um, we should have left the fridge open then. You could have uh, maybe <laughs> put stuff outside. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that would have been better. Um, that that I, We didn't think we put a lot of stuff outside um, to keep it cold. But, um, you know, the stuff that we hadn't put outside to freeze, it was it was done for. Um, but, um, you know, then, uh, there was a boil order. So, um, water wasn't safe to drink for people who had it, who had running water in their houses. We didn't have water, water running because the pipes were frozen. Um, but people who don't have electricity can't boil their water and water was sold out of stores. There wasn't any food. There wasn't any way to cook. There was, um, it really felt like, um, being on the precipice of, of something much, much worse. Like, I think really sort of understood how the kind of infrastructure that makes life comfortable every single day creates a veil in some ways about how close we are to to catastrophe at all times, right? It's just you flip a switch and people can't drink, they can't eat, um, they can't um, flush their toilets, right? You can't... Um, much less take a shower or wash your hands during a pandemic, right? So now power is mostly restored, but um, even this past week was the first time I was able to find milk. Um, And, um, you know, I know a lot of students at Rice and at other universities still don't have their Wi-Fi restored, their power still a little shady. Um, So things are still not quite back to normal. 
I was shocked when you you said uh, you were excited about the milk and you texted and you were like, milk. And I was like, oh, my God, it's been days. Um, I was surprised. Yeah, it was two weeks, um, I think, between the time that the storm hit and then we were able to find, you know, that that things were back in the stores at at regular um, sort of like normal stock. You know, there was even when the electricity came back on everything in the stores had spoiled also. So getting all of that back. And then once it does get in the store, then there's a run on supplies. And so it took quite a lot of time for for things to be in stock and be normal. But, you know, the sort of joke running around Houston was, you know, 2020 was the year without toilet paper and 2021 is the year without toilets. So did you consider drive leaving the state? Where would we go? I mean, Texas is as big as France. Like it would have taken, you know, if we go north, it's um, like six hours to get to Oklahoma. And, um, you know, gas was scarce here. I imagine it was scarce all along the way. Going east, Louisiana had it just as bad. Like there was um, not a lot of places that we could go. And roads weren't safe. I mean, the roads were frozen. So we were just sort of trapped here. I remember that one of the things that happened during this, right at the beginning, you were saying that, um, oh, we got warnings that it's going to be like a category five hurricane. And to what I suspect will be my enduring shame, I was like, really? <laughs> you know, I was, I just kind of didn't believe it. I mean, I grew up in Maryland where, um, you know, someone sneezes and there's a little snow, like everything grinds to a halt immediately. And now I live in Minnesota where, I mean, you could have um, several feet of snow and people would, would go on stoically. I mean, you know, uh, my husband and I joke about that too, because I told him the thing about the category five and he also kind of laughed. He's like, that's ridiculous, you know, but, um, as I was saying, like Houston doesn't have the infrastructure to survive a storm like that. And, um, I've actually heard now that there were more insurance claims from on this storm than there were during Harvey. Um, you know, and Harvey, I think, Something like two hundred. I has. I'm still not. Haven't gotten the official um, accounting, but it's two two hundred thousand homes. Three hundred thousand homes um, had flooding during Harvey. So more homes than that um, sort of submitted insurance claims during this storm. But I did not expect there to be a power outage. Right. That was not part of the messaging. Um, you know, and I, I grew up in the Midwest too. Like I grew up in Missouri. I lived in Kansas city during the freeze in 2002. Do you remember Whitney? Were you there? I remember there's well, you know, there've been a lot of those ice storms that then bring down branches that then send the power out. Um, I've lived here too long to remember which, what year that one was, but there have been. Yeah, many. it was 2000, I think it was 2002. Um, and the, you know, I lived in uh, Lee Summit at the time and the home that I lived in, we didn't have power for a week, um, but it was because of branches hitting power lines and downing them. Well, we did. I mean, speaking of the power grid, and that's what we want to talk about uh, a little bit here. You know, we had power blackouts in Kansas City, which was very surprising to me. That has never happened. Like deliberate blackouts, like where the, the, the you know, the company says, hey, we're shutting down. I mean, I feel like, look, you <laughs> You're a regulated monopoly. Your one damn job is to make sure that we have power and you're not doing it. Now, I'm sure that people in Texas are feeling a little bit frustrated about ERICOT, the nonprofit that runs Texas's power grid. We're not going to break any news here. People have talked a lot about this, but I want to just sort of set up what is unique about Texas's power grid and talk a little bit about the role deregulation plays in this uh, disaster. Sure. So... um... As I understand it, there are three power grids in the United States, right? There's the Eastern Connection, there's the Western Connection, and then there's Texas. Um, And Texas has a separate power grid from the rest of the U.S., um, mainly to avoid federal oversight and regulation. Um, Because the Texas power grid does not cross state lines, it avoids being subjected to federal rules. but, um, you know, what I think is, Im- and, <laughs> and honestly, I had not thought about the Texas power grid before all of this happened. But what I've learned is that um, ERCOT and the, and the power grid in general is resistant even to state regulation. So ERCOT is mainly in charge of managing the grid um, and it is regulated or 
overseen by the Public Utilities Commission of Texas. Um, and the people on the Public Utilities Commission are appointed by the governor. Um, and they have to um, follow the rules that are written by the legislature. But ERCOT then manages the grid, including making sure that um, the grid is reliable, that there's enough power for the demand, um, and also um, protect it from failure. You know, one of the pieces of news that's come out is the, that we were nine minutes and 15 seconds or something away from um, catastrophic failure of the grid um, that would have resulted in months of blackouts for essentially the entire state of Texas. Um, but ERCOT, because it is just Texas, it's outside of the jurisdiction of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, it does ha So ERCOT does have some ties to other grids and other states and their historic examples of where we have exported power to Oklahoma, for example, or imported it from Mexico. But in general, I think the folks in charge here want to keep it independent so that they don't have to be subjected to federal oversight. And so part of the issue is my understanding is like that they couldn't then say, hey, uh, East Coast, we like some power. We're having a problem, right? They're, they're on their own. That's right. So, um, I mean, I think there are several inputs um, where they potentially could have requested power be imported. Um, and I haven't heard yet why they did not do that um, or why that didn't happen. Um, and there's a sort of like swirl of, of information um, still around this and I haven't quite sorted out um, what exactly happened or, or why there wasn't sufficient production. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the governor it <laughs> went on Fox News to say it was because of windmills, frozen windmills, but that's not true. There was, um, windmills were producing about what everybody expected to, solar panels were producing what they expected to, but it was the sort of um, thermal power generators, nuclear. Um, I think even that produced mostly what they expected it to, but the gas and coal fire power plants froze or weren't winterized. Um, so there's that sort of information. But then I've also seen information about how um, there it may have been a market thing that that there wasn't clearance to buy gas at the price that it was being sold for. And so um, they didn't want to lose money by generating energy and not being able to recoup, recoup it. Um, and so it, it, there may have been something related to um, the market that, that generated this problem as well. Speaking of the purchasing of power within, you know, and, and getting to a point where utility is like paying for power and then having to charge a ridiculous amount, which some people got really high electricity bills or worrying that they won't be able to recoup their costs. That is what happened to a certain extent in California in 2000 that later came out that Enron uh, as you pointed out to me before this interview, a Houston-based company, so well within the WTF Texas theme of this, uh, you know, started manipulating uh, energy trading within the market in California that led to blackouts there. It's a huge scandal, I think, that everyone has forgotten about, but I just wanted to make that connection. Like, this is, we know deregulation, <laughs> this is what happens when you deregulate your energy market, I think. You know, I, and I just want to mention, since we mentioned other books, you know, The Smartest Guys in a Room is a book that explains this. That's by Bethany McLean and Peter Elkin, if people want to look that up. It's great. And there's also a really great documentary by the same name, right? Um, the Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. And I think that was sort of my introduction to the energy, um, to that round of energy crisis, right? The sort of 90s and early aughts. Um, but yeah, I mean, Enron lobbied really hard for deregulation on a national scale. Um, and partly that, um, I guess, their rationale for doing so, um, for, you know, passing the Energy Policy Act of 1992, which, you know, resulted in things like low flush toilets and, um, and carbon emissions and some things that were good. But they also suggested that deregulation would increase competition and increased competition would result in more energy production and lower energy prices. This is always the alibi, right? Whenever people say we're going to have increased competition, it is time to run away screaming. Of course. 
But what actually happened was that more competition um, created more demand for electricity and that allowed producers to charge more for electricity. And so producers used events where energy was scarce, right? Where energy demand spiked to inflate the price of energy. And that was the thing that we saw in Texas a couple of weeks ago during the freeze, um, where low energy production and high demand allowed producers to gouge prices. And that's why we're seeing folks getting energy bills for $10,000 or $20,000 or above. And originally ERCOT's said that they were going to um, sort of find a way to correct those bills and absorb the cost. But there was just um, a news report saying that they're not going to do that. They were, uh, they're planning to let these bills stand because they, want, they wouldn't want to leave businesses holding the bag for those high charges. Um, never mind that it's, of course, going to bankrupt many consumers. I remember during the crisis reading about a company that was advising its customers to leave. I would think it was gritty that was telling people, like, you should run away from us. Hey, this whole thing brought back a name that I'd like to try out on y'all. Uh, Jeff Skilling. Yeah. Anybody remember that guy? He was of the head course. of Enron. Here's a quote from him at the time. Uh, he's talking about California utilities. As the, Calif- as the utilities credit exposure gets too high, we will limit the amount of power we deliver into California, Skilling said at the time. Eventually, the state is going to have to provide these companies with the credit support from somewhere to support their purchases. Basically, like saying, like, we're going to squeeze the power down just to raise the prices and we're going to make the state pay for it. It's kind of insane. Right. And that's, I mean, the, you know, the news I'm still parsing through, again, from this particular storm, it seems to like there's a memo circulating around from the Public Utilities Commission that says that it was sort of giving the green light for producers to charge the maximum amount for energy during the freeze and that thinking that that would be a motivator for creating more production, right? That if they can charge the maximum amount, they will produce more, hoping to get more money, right? And there's, you know, the, um, I can't remember his name. He's some billionaire in Dallas who's in charge of one of these um, natural gas energy companies. But he, you know, told his board of directors, like, this is a jackpot for us. Like, this whole freeze, like, we are raking in the dough um, because we're able to gouge prices. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure this will go down in history as another kind of scandal like, like that. I want to know how this is playing out in politicians' minds. The governor of Texas is facing re- uh, re-election. Texas is generally considered a red state, although, you know, maybe it's changing. You'd think the party in power would want to prevent das- disasters like this, but conservative failures to attend a natural disaster are starting to feel repetitive. Do you think it's possible that Republicans actually privately think that allowing these disasters to ravage the state is somehow in their political interest? I'm thinking of Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism thesis here that the sort of disasters make it easier to, to pass unpopular ideas that you, a business-friendly, tax-cutting Republican, might like? Um, or are these simply failures or just bad governance and the GOP is going to be voted out? Um, I don't think the GOP will be voted out, but not because what they're doing is good. You know, Texas is a red state, but it's also a voter suppression state. And, you know, it's gerrymandered within an inch of its life. Um, But to your point about the disaster capitalism thesis, I think it's definitely borne out here by the evidence. You know, every disaster that happens here in Texas, you know, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Um, we saw that with Harvey, and I really have no doubt that we're going to see it again with the freeze. And of course, we see it in the pandemic as well, not just in Texas, right? Um, I saw there was a report in January um, from the Institute for Policy Studies and uh, that showed that American billionaires increased their wealth by over $1 trillion during the pandemic, and that during the same time, um, you know, we've seen the sharpest rise in poverty rates in the last 50 years. You know, and I think regarding the freeze, um, we saw that, um, you know, kind of disparate impact as well, where um, people who are economically disenfranchised have no way to boil water, have no way to eat food. Like they are really sort of on the verge of, of, of social collapse. And somebody like Ted Cruz is hopping on a plane to go to Cancun, right? That it's, it's just really, um, so, you know, to, to your question about policies, I think 
I don't know that they're like, you know, Dr. Evil, like sitting in their lair, petting their bald cat. Sorry, that's my dog (laughs) who, you know, hates Dr. Evil, Um, you know, plotting out the destruction of people. But I really think they don't have the best interest of Texas and Texans in mind um, that they are thinking about how to make their, you know, their donors wealthy and protect their interests, but not about people who are freezing to death in their apartments or in, in their mobile homes, right? And to me, that's more a sort of example of like um, Mbembe's thesis in necropolitics, right? That the ultimate in power is the, is the power to kill, right? And I think that they um, are really invested in, in that kind of power. Yeah, I think one of the most striking images for me in reading about this was that there was a photograph of Austin and it was just sort of like right split right down the middle and you could see half of Austin lit up and half of it not. Um, and this isn't, as you know, as, as you've said, this isn't the first time Texas has struggled in the aftermath of natural disaster. And you've written about Harvey and in Harvey as well, like marginalized populations and specifically black and, and Hispanic Houstonians were disproportionately affected. How can we talk about this differently to highlight that that's an ongoing issue? Because I feel like it, I don't know, despite everything, it feels like that keeps getting buried. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the in the aftermath of the storm, it was, you know, when power came back on and I was able to go back on social media, right? I was so bewildered by the kind of punching down that was happening um, about Texans that, you know, that this is what we asked for and, you know, let us freeze because we are, you know, (laughs) governed by these terrible Republicans. Um, And just sort of the idea that, um, that it's our, that people here, it's our fault that we we asked for this, um, that, you know, in in many ways, that's a different version of the same thesis that the GOP, P um, offers, which is that everything is an individual responsibility, right? That it's um, an individual's responsibility to make sure they're governed by the right people, you know, despite the fact, as I said, that there's, you know, voter suppression and, um, and uh, <laughs> terrible gerrymandering here, right? Um, it's hardest, it's harder to vote in Texas than it is in, than in any other state. But um the GOP is particularly fond, I think, of suggesting that we're all personally responsible for everything that happens to us um, or doesn't. And that individual responsibility um, is how we sort of think through um, climate change or disasters that, that we all need to be individually prepared. But I don't think that individual responsibility is going to result in the kind of transition that we need, right? Um, I mean, it's been shown time and time again that 20 corporations are generating a third of all carbon emissions in the world. Um, And yet um, I'm asked to focus right on my individual carbon footprint or my individual choices. Um, But of course, the idea of a carbon footprint is a marketing tactic used by fossil fuel companies um, to push responsibility for transition onto consumers. Um, And and. You know, of course, the fossil fuel industry is also located here in Texas, right? That's right in the WTF Texas category. I also would like to bring up. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's supposedly the energy capital of the world. If you follow markets, you know, uh, energy companies have been trading extremely well recently because uh, it related to in some ways, you know, uh, uh, oil prices going up. But also, I think, you know. We found a way to that, to make people really need a lot of energy here. You know, I mean, the, the, they benefit from this, right? From the from the power outage, you mean? Yeah. I mean, and that's definitely the way they're spinning it in the news, right? With as I said, with Abbott on talking about frozen windmills are the reason that we were all without power, um, and so it's def- they're definitely using it as a as a case to make for um, sticking with natural gas at the very least. And the reason that we still need fossil fuels is because of collapses like this. Um, but, um, you know, they're, (laughs) they're just refuse to draw the connections to think about how those, um, you know, those emissions result in, you know, increasingly, um, rare weather events happening, 
more and more often, right? I mean, once you start lying, it's, you, you know, it gets farther and farther away from being able to govern. So, I mean, if you say there's no climate change, there's no climate change, then you have, then you can easily say like, well, this was caused by windmills when it wasn't. I mean, it's just like, you, I mean, we have a party that feels like it's just, it has t- untethered from reality and can say whatever it wants. And as long as it's can get itself reelected, however, that's going to stay that way. I don't see it getting better. Um, all right. Speaking of telling the truth, however, we ha- got a sneak peek uh, at your forthcoming edited anthology, More City Than Water, a Houston flood atlas. And your introduction touches on some of the issues we've been discussing. Would you read from that to us? Sure. Um, so I'll just say very quickly about the flood atlas. This is a collection of essays and artfully rendered maps about flooding in Houston, sort of coming out of Hurricane Harvey, but obviously Hurricane Harvey wasn't the first time Houston flooded and it's certainly not the last. Um, So yeah, this is just a piece from the introduction. Um, All water has a perfect memory, Toni Morrison writes, but people tend to forget. Or perhaps we remember quite well, but the memory of water is longer than our own. Two years after Hurricane Harvey, Houston flooded again, this time from Tropical Storm Imelda, which dropped 43 inches of rain in two days. This flood made the fifth 500-year flood Houston had suffered in five years. For the fifth year in a row, we pulled one another from submerged vehicles and flooded homes. This time, a man drowned in his van, another in a pickup, one in a car, another trying to rescue his horse. One man drowned in a ditch. For a short time, the entire town of Winnie, Texas was underwater. Port Arthur was destroyed again. Barges containing toxic chemicals crashed into one another along the Houston Ship Channel again, but the second largest petrochemical complex in the world continued to supply the only nation to have withdrawn from the Paris Climate Accord with enough petroleum and natural gas to cause ice in the Arctic to melt to cause sea levels to rise, and to cause natural disasters become more catastrophic here and around the world every single year. Our growing numbness to these events makes us more susceptible to disaster in the future, not less. Houston is designed to flood, I have heard people say again and again, as they replace more and more of the coastal prairie with streets and interstates and apartment buildings and enormous multi-million dollar estates. But I do not hear anyone saying what this means when we see that catastrophic flooding does not touch people's lives equally. In the greater Greenspoint area, which is a neighborhood in Houston, a low-income community situated along Greens Bayou, some homes have flooded more than 10 times since Hurricane Allison in 2001. In Independence Heights, the first Black municipality in Texas, homes never flooded until TxDOT built the 610 interchange. On the east side, near the ship channel, residents not only deal with chronic catastrophic flooding from rain and storm surges, but also with the flooding of toxins, and not only when it rains. In contrast, the wealthiest neighborhoods, especially those located along in the city center, River Oaks, Montrose, and West University, they almost never flood at all. This is a story that needs telling, even if the official one resists change. In the city, buildings go up, buildings come down. 100,000 people move here every year, cramming into tiny apartments or three-bedroom homes in suburbs or tents along the bayou or vast sprawling estates. Refineries churn thousands of tons of toxic chemicals into the air every year and gardens bloom here every day. An ideal map of the city should include, marked in different inks, this history and all its implications, articulated and silent, evident and hidden. Thank you so much. Um, that's such a striking passage, and I'm so eager to see the flood atlas. The show has really frequently discussed the importance of writing about climate change clearly and simply and persuasively, and we've had a few writers on talking about that. I feel like here you're talking about, and, and also in that passage we can hear another important communication need, which is writing about infrastructure clearly and persuasively and it's and making clear that it's urgent and it's not at all a conventionally sexy topic, right? It's not um, narratively convenient um, for, say, some of the more, some of the maybe Eurocentric structures actually that we're used to. 
So are there particular successes and failures of writing or language that you've encountered in, in reading and writing about this and writing about the freeze specifically? I mean, writing about the freeze specifically, I think um, there are a couple pieces that have come out that really I found quite moving. But I think th there hasn't been a ton of public thinking by people here in Houston yet because um, we are all quite traumatized, I think. I, I mean, there was one piece that came out um, written by a friend of mine, Ra Rajman Khad, who's now the op-ed editor at the Houston Chronicle. Um, and he was talking about how, uh, about the trauma tax of living in Houston. Um, and it's a great piece about how Houston is such a great place to live. It's cheap, it's affordable, it's you know, one of the most diverse cities in the country. There's great food, great music. There's so many wonderful things about it, but we have to deal with climate disasters happening over and over again. And the kind of accumulating trauma of those disasters takes a toll. Um, you know, and he sort of profiles in that piece um, different people who are, you know, who had not yet recovered from Harvey, who are impacted by the pandemic, who are then, you know, impacted again by the freeze. And just the way that like living here is hard. Um, but I, for one, continue to do it because it's my home, it's a place I love, and it's a city I think that's worth fighting for. Thank you, Lacey, so much for coming on to talk to us about Texas and your work. It's great to see you. It's great to see you too. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Lacey. And listeners, don't forget to pick up Lacey's most recent collection, The Reckonings, and to be on the lookout for The Flood Atlas, which I think is going to be amazing. Now we're thrilled to be joined by Natalia Sylvester. Natalia was born in Lima, Peru, and grew up in Florida and Texas. Her first novel, Chasing the Sun, was named Best Debut Book of 2014 by Latinidad. Her 2018 novel, Everyone Knows You Go Home, won an International Latino Book Award, the Jesse H. Jones Award for Best Work of Fiction from the Texas Institute of Letters, and was named a Best Book of 2018 by Real Simple Magazine. She works as a freelance writer in Texas, and her writing appears in the New York Times, Bustle, Catapult, Electric Literature, Latina Magazine, McSweeney's Publishing, and the Austin American Statesman. Natalia's debut YA novel, Running, is out now from Clarion Books. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so we are a political and a literary podcast, and we've just been talking to Lacey Johnson about the politics of Texas and how they contributed to the blackout crisis there, among other things. But we want to start by talking to you about the literary side of Texas. You grew up in Texas and in Florida, and you live and write in Texas now. So what does it mean to be a Texas writer, and is there such a thing? Yeah, I was really fascinated by this question because I think, like, I had to really think hard about it. I was just like, do I? self-identify as a Texas writer and what does it mean? You know, I think, um, I think I both do and don't. And by that, I mean, I do and that I understand how important it is for me and other, um, you know, writers of color like me to really take up space and also claim this as our own, given the ways we've been, often been so violently left, violently left out of um, that mythological Texas identity, right? Um, but I'm not completely comfortable with thinking about it as a reaction to that. Like, because that's still really centering this white, um, you know, just like this white supremacist um, created identity that continues to be glorified over time in Texas history, right? Um, so I, I just, I think ultimately because so much of Texas history is rooted in this exceptionalism that I'm only comfortable in, in self-identifying as a Texas writer if it, as long as it doesn't like take away any other part of my identity, and, and make sure, like, and it's, you know, I am also a Peruvian, I'm a Latinx writer, I'm an immigrant, I'm a woman, I am a Florida and Texas writer. And all of these spaces and identities are equally valid, and they're equally places where I should feel at home in, and that I do. Um, and so I think I would be equally uncomfortable with any of them being taken away, but also with any of them being seen as the sole thing that identifies me. Well, you're talking about that. I mean, that's the thing that I thought about when I was thinking about this podcast is that there's the cliche of the Texas writer, right? And, and everyone, I think, you know, and it's related to race and, and to also to gender. I mean, I think, you know, people think of Larry McMurtry and Lonesome Dove. 
I think is the the book that outsiders from Texas or maybe white readers from Texas, uh, not in Texas, think of when they think of Texas. But there's also Cormac McCarthy. There's James Michener. Uh, you know, I, and you know, look, I I like James Michener. I I he's very you know he he gave a Michener Award that I won when I was in grad school, and he's done a lot of things for literature, but. There's still this tradition that writing about Texas means writing about cowboys and for the most part being white. But, you know, Texas is not like that anymore. You know, and I just wonder why. How much is that still alive as a tradition, do you think? It's not that it isn't like that anymore. It's also that it never was. It's just whose voices got to be centered, right? Um, Because Texas um, and like all land in the U.S. was indigenous land first and then it was colonized and, you know, part of Mexico and then it was its own country for a bit. And, you know, just and it has this really long history of, um, again, just um, this violence um, of of white supremacy and the notion of each man for his own. Right. And like we, we hear about the Texas Rangers and there are some who would love to consider them heroes in Texas history, but really they were agents of state-sanctioned violence against the Mexican population here, right? And people who, um, who had, who like had land here, you know, and whose land was taken from them and who were massacred and who were subjects of lynching, like were actually victims of lynching even in the 20th century. So this isn't really like long, like this isn't a distant history, right? Tell me people who are, you know, who are Texas writers who work outside of that myth. So there's a project called Refusing to Forget, and it's refusingtoforget.org, I believe. And um, it's created by John Moran Gonzalez, Monica Munoz Martinez, Christopher Carmona. um, And they're all Texas writers who are, you know, as the name of the organization implies, it's it's really refusing to forget the, um, the the true history of Texas that isn't just about this mythical cowboy hero, right? And that is really telling the truth of it and and telling um, the truth not only of the contributions of um, Mexican-Americans, but also the violence that they were subjected to systemically over, you know, for generations. Um, And then there's also like, you know, gosh, we have such a rich, um, you know, rich literary community, like writers like Brian Washington, who wrote Law and Memorial, um, there's uh, the poet Tarfia Faisula, who I had the pleasure of meeting a couple of years ago. Um, Adi Tsai is in Houston. She wrote this really great YA novel called Dear Twin. Um, Varian Johnson has written countless children's books, and so many of them um, are beautiful stories about Black history in Texas. And uh, I mean, there's just so much, you know. Donald Barthelme, great postmodernist writer who does not traffic in the cowboy myth except to make fun of it is also, you know, he grew up in Texas and and founded that creative writing program in Houston. So I think of him as a Texas writer as well. It also seems like so much of this is, as you were saying before, Whitney, like tied to masculinity and a lot of the writers that you've mentioned um, and some others that I can think of too, like Anna North's Outlaw just came out. And then of course there's Pam Zong's um, How Much of These Hills is Gold. Catherine Ann Porter is from Texas. Yeah, like there's sort of, right, like there's the like, there's Westerns and then there's Texas. And then, um, as you know, like there's sort of right the, the border. And um, for those who are not watching the virtual book channel, um, I'm putting air quotes around that in the video, um, right? So, and you're talking about like, um, like the way that these borders are really porous and how this literature has always been here. And, and as you know, like so much of it is coming rightfully to more mainstream center stage now. And, and that is a mainstream center stage, but it also sounds like a lot of the writers that you're talking about are really um, you know, defining their own terms. So how does this narrative get changed? Like what sorts of different forms or strategies do you see people using? And what sorts of stuff are you, are you thinking about yourself in relation to being, maybe being a Texas writer who's, sub, who's subversive? Is that fair? Um, I don't know. I. I... Honestly, I think that um, it, it depends on, it changes, right? It depends on the spaces that we find ourselves in, you know? Um, I think sometimes there are times where my place is really, I feel like it's more about supporting. Like there's um, this really great bookstore and organization called Red Salmon Arts that was founded in 1984 and by the activist Raul Salinas. He's, he was also a poet. And um, it's the longest running, at least from my, what I know in Texas, the longest running Latinx, Chicanx, and Indigenous bookstore, right? So these are people, like, they've been doing this work for so long. Um, 
that every every time I find myself in that space, I feel like um, just in awe of 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 the writers who um, are not. They're actually their work isn't just about writing. It's it's also community building through their voices, right? Um, there's people like Tony Diaz in Houston who have worked for a long time to get Mexican American studies into the curriculum of of Texas schools and things like that. I think are just so important because again, it's just about how do we really tell the truth? We need to get through, you know, we need to, we need to cut the crap, right? That has been, you know, that has been all about glorifying that one myth of, of Texas history. You mean the independent, exceptionalist, rugged individualist, Chuck Norris, Jerry World, Texas Ranger thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, Is that what you're course. talking about? Yeah, I mean, it, it, exactly. Yeah. But that has an effect. It has, it's having a policy effect now. I mean, I feel like yeah. that's why Texas has the separate electric grid. That's why the power outage disaster happened. That's why Greg Abbott, your governor, just decided to end the mask mandate. That's all part of that narrative, is it not? Of course. Oh, no. And it's 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 harmful to this day. I mean, I, gosh, what was it, Rick Perry, when he said, oh, Texans would rather freeze um, than, I, God, I don't want to, like, it was so ridiculous. Yeah, and the lieutenant governor volunteered for old people to die. It's, just, it's all the same thing. They've been reading the same books, these guys. And it's this warped sense of freedom of like, well, freedom means that we don't need anyone and we don't help anyone almost. Um, and but again, it is also deeply rooted. It, it, it is very much like this male patriarchy thing, right? Um, because, for example, it doesn't apply to what to, you know, to uteruses um, when they want to govern people's bodies. Um, but they're ha- you know, Rick Perry was happy to say, oh, we want government out of our businesses, right? And that's why they wanted, they, they've always had the, the Texas grid be independent. And that's what, you know, what left so many people freezing and dying during this storm. It was really just horrendous to watch. Um, so your novel running is actually set in Florida, but the issues, as we've mentioned, seem totally applicable to Texas. And for instance, there's a moment early on when the narrator criticizes her father, um, who's running for president, for doing something refi. Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Um, meaning like a refugee. And her father gets angry with her, asking her what people will think if she uses that kind of language. When will states like Florida or Texas stop being angry or embarrassed about diversity and the role immigration plays in the culture and the economy and start seeing this as an asset? And how does that create a new narrative? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think, well, first, I just want to make sure um, it's important, I think, also to be like specific in that, because it's, it, it, for example, that example of um, the use of refi in running, right? Um, that's something that is used really openly and freely within Latinx communities. And even within our communities, there is this sense of oppression and privilege that is at play when we try to... Um, separate ourselves from those who did it the right way and the wrong way. And I say that in air quotes, right? Those who came here in the right way and in the wrong way. Um, And so that term that like from the beginning of the book is there, like I was just like, I wanted to, um, I guess that was really my way of also saying like, we're not just because we are, we have experienced oppression doesn't mean that we can't further perpetuate it. So it's not only important for us to say, oh, hey, when, when can the states like Florida and Texas Um, you know, embrace the diversity, but it's also like even within our own communities, we're perpetuating these same harms. The thing is that both Texas and Florida have been, and really you can say the whole country, but like everyone has been benefiting from immigration, right? (laughs) All the time. Um, But it's really that they're exploited. So many immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants are exploited um, the ways that they do contribute to, um, to sadly, like the ways that we talk about it is often framed in this capitalistic way of like, look how much taxes they're paying, look how much they contribute to our economy. Um, and by that same token, we don't talk about how that's only happening through their exploitation. I mean, there's a reason why the Chamber of Commerce across the country are usually pro-immigration, you know, because they understand that this is a low-paid workforce that they can use. And that seems like something that's especially evident. I mean, in the pandemic, basically every time I buy something, I'm like, who who put this in the box? Um, yeah. Who taped it shut? Um, who mailed it to me? Who delivered it? Um, and, you know, disproportionately, of course, those are um, Black and Indigenous folks and people of color and, um, and a lot of immigrants, including here in mm-hmm. Minnesota. 
And I think you rightfully call out like, yeah, the capitalist language, which is everywhere. But I do think the pandemic has introduced this interesting language or this interesting um, language into our vocabulary of who's essential, right? Um, And the horror of realizing that those who are most essential are still not protected. Um, And I'm really, I'm hoping that that'll change, you know, that this, that we can start to see that, that, you know, we have like the people who have, you know, farmers can't stop picking our food. We're only surviving because of them. Right. Um, In the same way that we're surviving also because of those in the medical community and those who are working in job and service industry jobs that are mostly um, held by um, black indigenous and people of color. So it's such a juxtaposition to me of, of the ways we talk about who is essential and who isn't, and yet who is being protected and who isn't. Well, I think, you know, I, I think one of the great things about America is the fact that we have lots of immigrants here and that it's, an, it's a country of immigrants. And that is the thing that is what one of its best traditions. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about um, in Texas in the, in the last uh, presidential election, the Latinx vote was much more Trump, who is a very anti-immigrant person, than it was in some other places. And that has been one of the big stories to come out of the election. I wondered if you had thought about that, talked about it, had could tell us what you thought happened there. It was actually very frustrating to me, not just that it happened, but also that it was not surprising to anyone within the Latinx community, at least anyone who is, op- who is honest and looking around our community and seeing that... Um, Racism exists within our community. Um, the want, the desire to um, to align ourselves with whiteness um, exists deeply. Anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity, all of these things are what caused you know all these Latinx people to vote for Trump. And it wasn't sadly a surprise to me. Um, I saw it not only in twenty you know sixteen, and we, again we saw it in twenty twenty. But like, if any of us are being really um, honest about those in our community like it's always been there um it's a surprise to um you know a supposed mainstream audience because we get spoken about as if we are this monolithic group whose top priority um and political views would only be immigration and would only be um you know in the interests of immigrants um of all backgrounds rather than people who really maybe can say they're, you know, pro-immigration, but again, still only centering and looking in the interest of um, those who are most privileged. So um, to me, it was actually more frustrating that it was treated as such a surprise because it's part of that conversation we've been having for the longest time of just wanting to be heard and seen for the diverse community that we are. Um, And, um, and feeling like the only voices that really get to be heard um, when we talk, you know, within our community are those that, A, like we only get seen through this lens of suffering and through this lens of oppression and immigration. Um, and I think it's not just that our strength and resilience and beauty and joy deserve to be celebrated, but we also need to be able to, like, if I, like for me, it's like, what good is representation if we're only looking at the beautiful things of our community and not also acknowledging the ugly things, right? We are a community that is comes from people of all backgrounds, races, you know, Asian Latinx people, Black Latinx people, white Latinx people, people who are um, who have indigenous roots. Many of us are actually a mixture <laughs> of everything, you know, as diasporas go, like because um because it is a diaspora. But also even just based on the countries we come from, we enjoy different privileges, different life experiences, as you would as you can imagine. And all of that really can't be just described in in one sentence or one vote. It just deserves to be looked at through the very nuanced lens. It's interesting. Both reading your book and um, thinking about this issue and listening to you talk, I'm recently, I binged Treme um, with my partner, and there's a character in that show, which is about post Katrina New Orleans, um, a Texas businessman who is Latinx, um, who is Republican, and sort of shows up and says, you know, I'm the person in my family who votes Republican. And, um, And this character, yeah, sort of, you know, is there to make a dollar and is also, um, you know, 
connected to his community and um, like transcend, like sort of moves between, um, you know, wheelers and dealers and uh, people who are construction workers who are trying to get back on their feet in New Orleans. And um, I think if I'm remembering correctly, and Whitney, I know you've seen this series too, so maybe you recall, Nelson Hidalgo is maybe like an oilman in Texas or like is connected to that industry. And I was thinking about just what oil and natural resources and stuff have to do this. Cause this is also sort of like part of the, um, as you say, so-called mainstream narrative of Texas, there's oil, there's cattle um, and a lot of wealth and capitalism associated with this. And Texas has always been this wealthy state. And yet unlike California or New York, it has at least in recent years been a wealthy and conservative state. And Lacey Johnson was just talking about um, voter suppression. I wonder what you kind of think about how you, how you characterize Texas conservatism in those ways. Yeah, I, I think it's an illusion. <laughs> um, and I, I would say, I would echo Lacey Johnson. Um, if you actually do look at the numbers, we're not a conservative state. Um, they've, they've, there's been study after study that we're, um, if not purple, then in some cases blue. But the voter suppression, the ways that our, districting map there, that our redistricting has happened, um, if you ever look at those maps, like I remember look, seeing the, the map of my own district and it's just like the... I can't even describe what the shape is, but it's just so clearly drawn to make sure that those um, voting blocks come out red, right? Um, it's not just about the the voter suppression that has historically, again, disenfranchised um, voters of color, but it's deeply segregated. You know, I live in Austin and Austin prides itself on being this very proud, like proudly progressive city. Um, when you look at the history of Austin, it is systemically, like, there's such um, a sharp line that is actually a highway that divides East and West Austin. Um, it was, it's, it's just so deeply segregated. It, it has, um, it was all built along, you know, the redlining was just, I mean, you can really just trace it and see how it's still cre- like ha- causing so much harm today and pushing out like the, the communities that are being pushed out more and more um, in Austin are always black and Latinx populations. Um, so, I, I don't see Texas as a conservative state. I see it as a state that's unwilling to give up the power that they have enjoyed for so long through very dubious practices. It's hard to, um, to see when things like the storm happened last week for people to kind of just poke fun at Texas and be like, oh, that's what you all get, you know, for voting the way you do when there are people who are every day trying to change that. And I think listening to both you and Lacey talk, I can't help but think of Georgia where, you know, I think so many people kind of like stood up and cheered when um, so many organizers worked hard and, and flipped that state. Um, and now of course are facing new legislation to make voting harder once again. It is interesting to me that both of them, Sugi, have said, we're tired of people saying that this we deserve this. So yeah. I want to make clear we are not saying that. Yeah. By when we say when we say what the fuck Texas, we are wondering what's going on down there. We are yeah. we are certainly do not view you as responsible for things that Greg Abbott are do, is doing. I don't think even Greg I, Abbott thinks Greg Abbott is responsible for things that Greg Abbott is doing. Um, but I'm really eager to talk about running also because I just really enjoyed reading it. Um, I. One of my favorite books when I was little, I'm so curious about whether you've read this. Have you ever read Ellen Emerson White's The President's Daughter? No, I haven't. Um, when I was little, I was really obsessed with this book. Um, and I also grew up in the DC area. So anytime there's like the political- Suki has character. talked about this book on like 15 different episodes <laughs> of this podcast. I'm trying to get it in the show notes for every- Anyway, so um, like reading them, thinking about these books together was really fun. And also just your character is great and the story is great. And it features an ambitious Cuban-American politician who's running for president. It's- um, really interesting to me also that um, the two states you grew up in, Florida and Texas, have senators who are Cuban-American and who ran for president, Marco Rubio and uh, the increasingly infamous Ted Cruz, respectively. And what was it like for you to watch Rubio and Cruz run against Trump in 2016? And when did you did, did you begin writing the book before or after that? I started writing it during. And yeah, it was, it was very interesting, actually. Um, the... The idea for running actually came to me while watching a speech by one of them. I won't say who, <laughs> um, but it was because I saw um, there was there was a speech, and I could see their daughter, like his daughter, in the background. 
like I was just fascinated by what must she be thinking in this moment because there was an expression on her face that I just couldn't place and I just kept thinking like what must it be to be this daughter who has to like literally and figuratively stand behind your father and support them um and support him when what if you don't support his views you know what what would it mean to step into your own power within in within the context of this campaign that's happening at a national level um and um it was really interesting because like I said I started writing it during the, the the election like during the campaign once the elections happened I couldn't keep writing it I, I actually took like months where I just couldn't focus on anything to do with writing um and I was just trying to see like what can I possibly do um to counteract all the harmful harmful measures that are going to be in place soon. And so a lot of that time I spent like being at the Texas Capitol. At one point I actually went, I remember meeting with Ted Cruz's office. I met with Senator Cornyn in Washington because when we all went to DC for AWP, he had like a happy hour coffee with Texans where he like welcomed all his Texans to come visit him. And I don't think they were expecting us. Um, But it was in a way, I think it ended up being this, um, I don't, I mean, looking back, I realized how much of my own frustrations with both, you know, crews here in Texas and, you know, I'm still, I still follow so much of Florida politics. And so with Rubio as well, just kind of all mixed together into this like ball of rage. <laughs> 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 and and to be fair, one of the challenges of writing it was um, making sure that the, the character in this book, Anthony Ruiz, was also his own character, that it wasn't just me like channeling all my frustrations. I also think the book is is funny. That doesn't read like a ball of rage to me. I mean, it's very smart, you know. I Thank want to make you. sure that readers, that our right. listeners know that. Well, that was thanks to Maddie and her friends. Like, and that's the thing I do. I think I will say that um, writing this book is actually what ended up helping me come back to um, even just looking at my own advocacy and activism from a place of hope and from a place of joy. Um, because like Maddie finds friends in her life who help her see that too. And, and I think it ended up being a book that I just needed to write, not only for myself, but hopefully others um, would find hope in it too. But in that time for me, it was just almost like I was writing myself back to a place of hope rather than a place that was only for, about my own despair and rage. One thing that I thought about a lot while I was reading Running was, of course, th- this was, you know, we just got through the whole Ted Cruz goes to Cancun and blames it on his kids uh, fiasco and and leaves his poodle behind. Um, and it's so embarrassing to have your dad blame you for uh, this hugely public mistake, you know? Um, your character seems like a better guy than Ted Cruz, but uh, your novel running is very aware of the embarrassment that is possible in political life for politicians themselves and for their ch- and especially for their children. I wondered if you could read to us a passage about that. Oh, sure, yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. Um... So let me see. So there's this is actually a passage at the, in the very first um, few pages of running. Um, my character Maddie is reflecting on um, the ways that her dad's campaign has made her life a lot harder. And it's all because of something he did during a primary debate or something he said. Last week during the primary debate, Bobby messed up bad. I could tell by the way Mani, who sat between me and Ricky in the front row, squeezed my hand like she was making orange juice. The moderator had asked my father about climate change, about why the party is so averse to using those two words when Miami Beach is already being affected by sea level rise. That's not entirely accurate, Bobby said, in this vague, could-mean-anything way that I'm starting to realize is probably the point. He added that the weather weather patterns are not necessarily man-made and that what's happening on the beach shouldn't be blown out of proportion. When a hurricane blows our way, do the other 49 states duck for cover? No, because we're talking about Miami, not the whole country, he said. Then, maybe out of nerves, or maybe thinking it'd be funny, he chuckled and added, we can be our own Latin America bubble sometimes. By the end of the debate, hashtag bubble boy Ruiz was trending and people from both political parties were saying that comments like my dad's are what enable our government to abandon its own people in times of crisis like they did Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Others were calling his Latin America soundbite controversial and insensitive, which everyone knows is code for racist. Joe started freaking out that my dad's campaign would have to go into crisis mode. Jesus, he said. 
He just made all of South Florida think he doesn't think they count, is what he kept repeating over and over. The primary elections are less than a month away. Other states like Arizona and Illinois are voting on the same day, but my father's team is hyper-focused on Florida because for him, it's make or break. He can't win the GOP presidential nomination without winning his home state. It's worth way more votes than most. Pissing off the city with his highest number of supporters was a really stupid move. Even the kids at school were upset. In the hall, I counted four girls who walked by me popping their gum in huge, loud bubbles. Ignore them, Bibi said. They'll be over it by tomorrow. They're so full of shit, pretending they care about politics. But it's been five days, and things have only gotten worse. I click on the hashtag and scroll. People accuse my father of turning his back on his own community. A headline from the Miami Herald reads, Ruiz burst his own bubble among Hispanic voters. An opinion piece is titled, Here's why Senator Ruiz's comments perpetuate white supremacy. One of the most popular tweets, a thread shared 22,000 times and counting, is by Jackie Velez, a senior at our school. She has a huge following because she's the editor of the school paper, and she interned at Teen Vogue one summer. The only person in a bubble is at Senator Ruiz. He seems to have forgotten that Latinx people are Americans too. What makes him think he'll will support him at the polls when he so easily turns his back on his own community? Thank you so much, Natalia. That is really good. It's just a really interesting book. Uh, I, I encourage, uh, we, we both encourage our listeners to go check out your novel Running and the rest of your work. And thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. Our show's producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and on our YouTube channel. Until next time, mask up and stay safe. <laughs>